Welcome to the Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. It's time to talk about space, the final frontier. Or rather, I'm going to talk about how medievals understood the structure of the universe, and how exactly they conceived of their place in it. And I hope that you may find elements of this story to be surprising, even if you're relatively well-informed on the history of science. So let's kick off. I said that some of you might be surprised. So I'll start today's talk with the history of science commonplace. In 1633, Galileo Galilei went on trial for heresy before the Roman Inquisition, a church court designed to sniff out heresy. He was found guilty and forced to denounce his earlier publications in which he argued that the earth revolves around the sun. That much is true. It's often said that Galileo came under attack because his argument for the structure of the cosmos contradicted the Bible. And that's less right. You see, yes, Galileo was indeed challenging the reigning model of the structure of the universe. But it was a model that was a synthesis of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, of naked-eye astronomy, and an attempt to reconcile those with the Bible. It was a view of the cosmos that, although inadequate once the telescope came onto the scene, was the product of both observation and human reason. This worldview was a composite. It drew on philosophers like Aristotle and what we call the Neoplatonists, those philosophers inspired by Plato, but who had more place for the spiritual in their understanding of the universe. This worldview drew on geographers from the Egyptian city of Alexandria in the age of the last dynasty of pharaohs, the Greek-speaking Ptolemies. It drew on the astronomer in Roman-ruled Egypt in the second century, Claudius Ptolemy, who gave these observations concrete mathematical numbers. And finally, Christian thinkers from the late Roman Empire on had sought to integrate this cosmology into the Christian worldview. By the early Middle Ages, your learned churchmen would have just assumed that this was the shape of the world. So let's talk about how a medieval churchman or literate layperson would have understood the known universe. In the first place, it's often said that medieval people inhabited a universe that was fundamentally small and that, before science, people hadn't known that the universe was big. And, well, that's not quite right. Yes, medievals were off by a few orders of magnitude, but one thing that they knew was that the universe was incredibly big compared to the planet Earth and how we perceive it. Let me discuss two philosophers whose books were exceedingly common throughout medieval Europe. The first-century Roman philosopher Seneca wrote several times in his Natural Questions that the size of the earth in comparison with the rest of the cosmos is, and I quote, a mere pinprick. Indeed, he speaks of the absurdity of human ambition, noting that this pinprick is, quote, carved up among so many nations by sword and fire, end quote. Five centuries later, in the early 500s, the Christian philosopher Boethius wrote a work known as The Consolation of Philosophy. This book was one of the most widely read books by literate Europeans outside of the Bible. 
Not only did its Latin text receive broad circulation, but it was translated into most vernacular languages. A vernacular language being the language of everyday speech, like English, French, and the like. And let's quote Boethius directly. As you have heard from the demonstrations of the astronomers, in comparison to the vastness of the heavens, it is agreed that the whole extent of the earth has the value of a mere point. That is to say, were the earth to be compared to the vastness of the heavenly sphere, it would be judged to have no volume at all. The South English legendary, a set of saints' lives written at the turn of the 14th century, says that if you traveled from the surface of the earth at 40 miles a day, you wouldn't reach the stars for at least 8,000 years. Now then, that's still thinking too small, but I hope that you have a sense that the people of the Middle Ages knew the universe to be very, very big. So let's now describe this universe, starting from the highest of heights and working our way down. The thing to know about the universe is that medieval people thought that it was a sphere, for a sphere was the most perfect form of the circle. And of course, the circle was the most perfect of shapes. And this sphere, and all spheres nested within it, were in constant motion. Who set the sphere of the universe and the spheres within it into motion? Well, that would be the first mover, whom Christians, Jews, and Muslims understood to be God. God acted on the world as first mover and first cause first moving the outer sphere of the universe, which ancient and medieval people had understood to be the sphere in which the stars were fixed. Some philosophers had suggested that the stars might be suns in their own right, but this was always a minority opinion. Most people thought that they were fixed in an outer sphere of the cosmos. So God set the universe into motion. The force that he used to set the outer sphere into motion then set the spheres that move in circles, what we today would call the planets and their orbits, into further motion. Some philosophers argued that the forces through which God as first cause made the planets move was the intelligences, lesser beings who were God's agents in creation. Philosophers would speak of God's activity in moving the intelligences as an emanation, as reality and causation emerging from God's divine being by his very nature. So what are these intelligences? Well, Christians, Muslims, and Jews identified them with angels. So God's motive power would influence the angels. And there was usually an angel identified with each individual planet. And that angel was said to move the planet in a perfect circle. Advances in astronomy would later show that orbits are actually elliptical, but to the naked eye, they appear spherical. Why would the angels do this? Well, out of the love of God, they would move in that most perfect of motions. Now then, some philosophers disagreed that this was what caused orbits. The 13th century philosopher, William of Auvergne, thought that it was absurd that the angels would basically be doing the same thing as a donkey harnessed to a mill. But while we're talking about the motion of the planets, I want to note that the medievals understood that these motions were very, very 
fast. Alfrich wrote in the 10th century that the planets moved, and I quote, faster than any mill wheel. And sure, they're actually orders of magnitude faster than that, but the point is that a medieval person understood that the planets were moving really, really quickly. So the influence of the planets keeps working its way through the circles in which the spheres are moving, moving from sphere to sphere. Of course, medieval people believed that the sun was one of the circling bodies and that the earth was in the center of these circling spheres. Again, we have to remember that with naked eye astronomy, this makes sense. More importantly, both Ptolemy and his commentators had done the numbers so that everything did work out. Finally, we travel from the orbit of Saturn to Jupiter, to Mars, then the Sun, Venus, Mercury, and finally to the Moon. Now then, here's another area where medieval cosmology differed from modern. Learned medieval people believed that the universe was fundamentally different above the orbit of the Moon and below the orbit of the Moon. You'll often see our world referred to as the sublunary world to contrast it from the heavens. What were the differences? Well, in the first place, the superlunary world, that is, the universe out beyond the moon's orbit, was thought to be perfect and unchanging. All motions above the moon's orbit were circles, and matter did not change, did not decay, did not alter. But wait, you may ask, what about recognizable changes, like, for example, comets that show up in a pattern that doesn't appear predictable? Well, medieval people believed that a comet was an atmospheric phenomenon, not something above the orbit of the moon. And the superlunary world was made of what medieval people called the fifth element, quintessence. So let's talk about the elements here. You see, going all the way back to Empedocles in the 400s BC, Greek and Roman philosophers had understood the sublunary world to be made up of a combination of four elements, earth, fire, water, and air. Note that this view didn't really have a place for atoms, and indeed most ancient and medieval philosophers thought that the notion of matter being made of atoms was kind of ridiculous. Indeed, the notion of the four elements also helped to explain why things might either move up or fall down. Medieval philosophers didn't have a notion of what we call gravity. Rather, there was a sense that each element had a natural inclining. What do I mean here? Well, why do objects fall when dropped? Well, it's because the earth that's in them has a natural inclination to the center of the cosmos. Why does flame rise? It's because the elemental fire that makes up the majority of a flame has a natural inclination upward. Note, though, that you don't really have pure elements. All things that exist are some combination of the four, although obviously some elements predominate in some types of matter. So above the orbit of the moon, we have quintessence this unchanging element, whereas below the orbit of the moon, we have an earth 
made up of the four elements. So let's finally get to that last part of the cosmos, namely the Earth. In the first place, we need to remember that ancient and medieval people alike believed that the world was a sphere. Philosophers like William of Conch in his Dragmaticon explained that this was pretty obviously true, since you could see things like a ship's sails dropping below the horizon as it sails out of sight of land. People with an education in the Middle Ages did not believe that the world was flat. You'll still sometimes see that said, but that idea was largely the product of 19th century myth-making. When Americans wanted to tell the story of how Columbus was brave enough to challenge a backward medieval world. So if you are a 19th century American, how do you establish a figure like Columbus as the first American, even though he sailed three centuries before the United States existed? Well, you tell stories in which he is the one man willing to stand up to people who think that the world is flat. So, American myth-making, but not actually really history. Anyway, medieval Europeans understood the spherical Earth as being made up of three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia. Following the 3rd century BC geographer Eratosthenes, and subsequent thinkers, they divided this world into Arctic, temperate, and tropical climates. Medieval people had a decent knowledge of North Africa and the Middle East, since there was regular contact between them and Europe. When you went further afield, though, knowledge got much, much sketchier. Medieval people knew about India, since they had the geographical writings of ancient Rome. But they were less well-informed about East Asia. They vaguely understood that there was a place far to the east where silk came from. But it wasn't until the 1200s when Mongol conquests created an empire stretching from China to Europe that Western Europeans visited China. Indeed, we have an account of the Franciscan friar William of Rubruck who visited the Mongol Khan as an ambassador to the French king. And he remarked, from observations made on his journey east, that the late 6th century encyclopedist Isidore of Seville had been wrong about, for example, the size and extent of the Caspian Sea. It's important to note, then, that after the late 1200s, Western Europeans had a decent idea of the shape of East Asia, but prior to that, knowledge was iffier. Geographers told stories that perhaps one could find earthly paradise in the East. You had accounts of the mythical giants Gog and Magog from chapters 38 and 39 of the book of the prophet Ezekiel in the Bible. And Gog and Magog were said to have been walled up by Alexander the Great. And they were said to be these giants who would break down these walls and make war upon the world at large at the end of the age. Which is to say that prior to the 1200s, medievals didn't know a lot about East Asia. Sub-Saharan Africa was likewise poorly known. For a while, people had assumed that it would get hotter and hotter the further south you went, and so thought that it was impossible for people to live at the equator. Indeed, some speculated that there was a whole separate race of people known as the Antipodes, who were complete opposites to people in the northern hemisphere, who lived south of the equator, but who could never be reached or contacted. But in the 12 and 1300s, you had the rise of the Malian Empire in that part of Africa that is just south of the Sahara Desert. Trade with Mali, 
which had some of the world's most extensive gold reserves, created an awareness that there was an African empire south of the Sahara. But geographers were confused, unsure as to whether the Niger and Senegal rivers were distinct, or indeed if they might be a branch of the Nile. Ethiopia, itself a Christian kingdom from the 300s when its king Ezana had converted to Christianity, was little known to medieval Europeans. Between Ethiopia and Christian Europe, after all, lay Egypt, dominated at various points in its history by various Muslim caliphates and sultanates. There was some contact with Ethiopians, since there were Ethiopian monks in Jerusalem, but the kingdom itself was little known. The appearance of Ethiopian representatives at the 1441 Council of Florence was something of a shock to many Europeans. Some Europeans from the 1400s on thought that Ethiopia was the realm of Prester John. Who exactly was Prester John? Well, from about the 12th century, Western Europeans had told stories of Prester John, ruler of a mighty Christian empire far to the east, one that was greater in power and might than all of the Islamic forces faced by Western Europeans. Indeed, in the late 1100s, a forged letter that was said to come from Prester John began circulating in Western Europe, recounting such marvels as a walled city that was four days' walk from one end to another, where jewels and gold of all sorts were available to the lowliest of commoner, and more besides. This story was largely wishful thinking, but it meant that when Europeans would encounter Christians in Africa and Asia, Christians whose communities went back to at least the 300s and 400s, Europeans naturally thought of Prester John. Europeans knew of Europe, Africa, and Asia, however imperfectly. What of those lands that today we call the Western Hemisphere? Well, far to the north, the peoples of Scandinavia knew of Iceland and Greenland, and their sagas had spoken of lands further to the west. But these were largely read only in Scandinavia, since after all they were written in Old Norse. These sagas also contain fantastical elements, such as stories of one-legged people who go about by hopping. For the most part, though, medieval people believed that between Europe and Asia was the Atlantic, nothing but ocean. The poet Dante had imagined that Purgatory's Mountain, the earthly ascent of purification that you needed to travel to reach heaven, lay at the other side of the globe. But this was a work of imaginative fiction, not science. And this leads to another question. Why did nobody try to reach Asia by sailing west on the Atlantic if they knew that the world was a sphere, but didn't know that the Americas existed? Well, you see, educated people were correct about the size of the Earth. You remember Eratosthenes? Well, as far back as the 200s BC, he'd estimated the size of the Earth accurately within a few hundred miles. And think about it. If the world is actually just under 25,000 miles in circumference, and there are no Americas, well, if you tried to sail west across the Atlantic to reach Asia, you'd die of starvation long before your ship came in sight of land. The reason that Columbus undertook such an expedition was that he got the size of the Earth wrong. So now we've covered the heavens and the Earth. It's important to note here that the belief that the Earth is at the center of the universe is not necessarily an indication that humanity is special. No, rather, it's a belief that the Earth is at the closest thing the universe has to a bottom. It's where everything 
settles. Above us are the heavens, unchanging and perfect, while down here, down at the lowest point of creation, well, that's where the world is subject to decay, to change, to sickness, and all other manner of evils. So now let's look back up from our world. Modern improvements in astronomy have shown that the Earth is not the center of the solar system, and that fundamentally the observable universe has no real center. We also know that the orbit of the planets is elliptical rather than spherical, such that they do not move at an even rate in their motions. And of course, ancient and medieval astronomers would look up at the sky, they'd measure, and they'd find out certain things didn't fit in with their model of the universe. After all, because the Earth is just as much in orbit as the other planets, there are times when certain planets relative to Earth appear to be moving backwards what ancient astronomers called retrograde motion. Claudius Ptolemy had solved this problem in the second century with the notion of the epicycle, the idea that not only do the planets move in a circular motion around the Earth, but also that within that circular motion, they move in a smaller circle. Once you add in the epicycles, the math works, and you can predict where the planets will be. Indeed, for over half a century after Copernicus proposed that the Earth orbits the Sun in the 1500s, the math actually worked better with a geocentric model. It wasn't until Kepler figured out that orbits were elliptical in the 1600s that the numbers actually worked. Notice that I've been talking a lot about Greeks and Romans. The early 11th century Iranian philosopher Ibn Sina is also important in all of this, and the only reason I've mentioned less of him is that his writing is incredibly difficult, and, as I've mentioned before, I got a pity A- when I took medieval philosophy in grad school. But notice as well, we've got Greeks, we've got Romans, we've got Arabs, there's not a lot of Bible here. And that's fundamentally because the whole cosmology I've been talking about was largely arrived at by observation and reason. Jews, Christians, and Muslims called the first mover God. But there's no need to make that first mover the God of Abraham. After all, Greek and Roman Neoplatonic philosophers, pagans, believed in a similar model of the universe. Likewise, the intelligences and their relation to cause and the planets, all those came from people thinking through the way the natural world works. So, why did factions in the early modern Catholic Church react so angrily to Galileo if he was disproving a model largely proposed by pagan Greeks? Well, the answer to that becomes longer and more complicated, but I hope you can see by what we've talked about today that the problem was not one of science versus biblical literalism. But of course, if the motion of the planets are how causation works, might it be possible to harness this power and affect causality? Well, to an ancient and medieval person, it might indeed be the case. And so next episode, we are going to talk about natural magic and astrology. If you'd like to discuss this episode further, there's a link to our Discord in the episode description. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe.
I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tape. Thanks for listening.